Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark as we continue to press on through this account of Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> We're in chapter 3, looking at verses 20 through 30. And remember, Mark is kind of an eyewitness level, affidavit type recording and testimony of what happened in Jesus' life. It's coming from some firsthand experience, uh, not just from Mark, but also maybe from Peter as well. And Mark writes as he continues through the book, and if you've read through the book recently, you'll, you'll kind of see this. There's an escalating tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so this tension will ultimately lead to Jesus' crucifixion, his trial, his arrest, etc., which is all part of God's plan. Now, it may not look like part of God's plan, but it is part of God's plan. And today, these verses expose that tension a little bit more, and it's in two groups of people. Jesus' family, his earthly family, and the Pharisees. And it's probably one of the more somber passages. It's not got a lot of joy and rejoicing in it. I mean, we can rejoice because we know the outcome of it, but... Uh, it's a little more somber. Let me read the passage and then we'll dig into it a little bit more. Starting with verse 20. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them, and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to hear your word preached, help us to focus and listen, both the speaker and the, and the audience. Lord, oh God, reprove us in the areas we need to be reproved and rebuke us in those areas where we need to be rebuked and encourage us in the areas we need to be encouraged. Do this all for your glory through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you notice the title this morning, blasphemy in the mind versus the heart. I want to take a little second here and define what blasphemy is. Now in Proverbs 10, 19, the Bible says where there are, words are many, sin is unavoidable. I used to tell that to my teenage kids when they were getting into Facebook. and It's like all these words is usually going to cause somebody to sin. And that's what blasphemy is. It's a word-based sin. It's a word-based sin or crime which denigrates someone who is worthy of honor and glory. And specifically, when we're talking about blasphemy of God, 
We're talking about those who, by contemptuous speech, intentionally come short of the reverence due to God. So speech that is injurious to his majesty, that's blasphemy. And that's kind of what we're going to look at today because we're going to see it in both of these groups of people I mentioned. Jesus is attacked basically by his family here and the Pharisees. And one attack is forgivable and the other one is not. And we'll see why. One's unpardonable. And uh, in this encounter, Jesus reveals to us that blasphemy is still a serious crime. So we need to be careful. What separates blasphemy from forgivable to unforgivable? Well, Jesus deals with this in three scenes here. Three kind of separate scenes, even though they're all kind of at the same moment in time. They're kind of three different scenes. And, and it's regarding blasphemy to show us the difference between forgivable and unforgivable. First of all, his family rejects him. Point number one, Jesus overlooks his family's resistance. Verses 20 through 21. Let me, let me read this again for you. It says, Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. I can't believe they said that. Well, this is scene number one, okay? So Jesus returns to probably Capernaum, probably the house of Peter and Andrew, and he begins to have, try to have a meal with his disciples, and the crowd shows up again. And we've been through this already in the first two, three chapters of this. This crowd is always on Jesus. The popularity is enormous. Jesus is healing. He's casting out demons. He's, he's doing all kinds of things, raising paralytics, it's, it's, it's a crowd that's just constantly, and they can't even relax. They can't even have a moment. <laughs> and so his family, somehow in the mix of all of this and in the knowledge from Nazareth, they're in a different town, but they've heard about Jesus having this popularity. So they think he's lost his mind. Who does he think he is kind of thing? And so his family tries to intervene. You know, that, that's a popular word today, intervention. You know, we're going to intervene and help somebody get out, of the, get out of their way, in a sense. But it, it, it uses the word here, they're going to try to restrain Jesus. Now, that's always puzzling to me. I don't know if you've ever tried to restrain Jesus, but he's not restrainable, trust me. Now, they may have done this out of embarrassment. There may have been some honor in this, that he was embarrassing the family with all of his teachings and his miracles. I don't know. Most likely, though, his actions and teachings was just too much for them. They were like, Wait a minute, I grew up with you. I mean, this is his brothers and sisters and mom. We're going to see that later next, next time. But they're like, I grew up with you. Who do you think you are? And their conclusion about his behavior, it sounds almost like blasphemy, doesn't it? They said he's out of his mind, implying that he's insane. And back then, insanity was connected to demon possession. A little bit, sometimes, not every time, but it was kind of like you've got this unclean spirit is the words they like to use to make it nice, not sound so bad. But they're like, he's out of his mind. Now, we're going to see Jesus finish this up later in verses 31 through 35, and that's a couple of weeks away when I'll preach on that. But this is a technique that Mark uses and that authors use. It's, it's called intercalation. Yeah, I'm just giving you a nice fancy term that you can know for literary uh, critique but basically it's just sandwiching two stories so the story is 
of his family's resentment of him and his, their rejection of him is, is sandwiching the story we're about to get into with the Pharisees. Mark does this a lot. You see it in movies all the time. They'll show you a scene of something, and then they'll break to another scene that has, you don't think has anything to do with that scene, and it may never have anything to do with that particular scene. And, so it, and then you finish up the story later. It's just a technique. But Mark uses it a lot in here, and you're going to see it. You're going to see him start talking about something and then break off to another story. And I just wanted you to have that nice, fancy term you can impress your friends with later. So, but what's important out of this, really, is to see what their statement is. Their statement may actually lead others to think Jesus has an unclean spirit because they're saying he's insane. He's lost his mind. And, and so Jesus kind of hears this, but he overlooks it. And there's a reason he overlooks it. It's a human conclusion. It's a conclusion based off of nothing other than just what their mind is telling them about human behavior. They are really assessing Jesus with their minds, not with their heart. Yet, that's the good news, that they will eventually. But. So this is forgivable. This type of blasphemy, if you will, is forgivable. And will be forgiven. But it kind of sets up the next scene we go into with the Pharisees. You know, our, fam our families are usually the first to misunderstand us and to second-guess us. And uh, mine's no different, and, and I can tell you many of stories. But, but Jesus was no different. He had a family that was second-guessing him kind of questioning why he was doing what he was doing. And uh, couldn't, they couldn't make sense of it. But we must exercise this, this proverb from Proverbs 19.11 that says, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Sometimes we're too quick to get angry at some, what someone says to us, about us maybe, and instead of just overlooking it and letting go of the resentment and the anger. And so like his family, we sometimes, we fail to understand all the teachings and principles that Jesus brings to us. I mean, every time I'm reading my Bible or studying, it's like I never even thought about it, Jesus and this story and this thing meaning that. Because we're constantly learning. So instead of drawing a bad conclusion or a wrong conclusion, we must study. We must learn. And we must pray so that we don't go off on the tangent that his family's kind of gone off on and thinking that Jesus is weird, insane. See, because sometimes we can commit like this mental blasphemy. You know, when we, when we refuse to obey, we know what's right and we go the other way. That's mental blasphemy. You're just choosing in light of what you know to do wrong. It's a form of it. You may, you may not trust him. You may not listen to Jesus rationalizing our sin and I know none of you are guilty of that rationalizing our sin we we convince ourselves oh this will be okay and and rationalizing our sin really is that contemptuous speech against God because we're intentionally disregarding what we know to be right and it falls short remember that phrase from Romans 3:23 it falls short of giving God the glory he is due in other words, it's blasphemy. So if you thought today that you weren't ever guilty of blasphemy, I just kind of ruined your day, I think. But, you know, but Jesus forgives his family readily, and he'll forgive us with our repentance and confession. Because he knows our minds are still influenced by the world around us and even the sin that we still hang on to. So we need to just confess our own mental 
misgivings about Jesus, because we have them, and find him forgiving and encouraging, because he will be. James says his brother, by the way, his half-brother writes, be quick to listen and slow to become angry. Slow to speak. His family wasn't so slow to speak. So this family kind of disavowed him mentally right here in this particular point in time. And now the scribes, <laughs> they reject Jesus with an unrepentant heart. Jesus faces blasphemous rejection. That's point number two. Let me read verses 22 through 27. This is probably the more somber part of the, the passage this morning. So he, the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them, spoke to them in parables. Jesus says, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Wow, there's several parables in there, and I want to kind of break them down for you a little bit. But we, we, never need, we need to never forget that there are two kingdoms always in conflict here in, 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 these, in the Bible as you read it, as well as in the world today. I apologize. Got a tickle this morning. <clears throat> and we see this war again very vividly right here with these scribes. Now, scribes sounds like what they are they they write but most of the time this word scribes is referring to pharisees who teach the bible what they had of the bible the old testament back then so these guys are but these guys are from jerusalem and when it says come down from jerusalem we know that galilee's north of of jerusalem so we think that's going up on the map but it's elevation they're talking about so he comes down from they come down from jerusalem in elevation to galilee so someone has alerted the higher ups in jerusalem that jesus is down down in galilee teaching and healing and casting out demons and he's got a big following so they come down to try to snuff it out they're coming down to control it they're trying to derail jesus's popularity shut down his teaching because they don't agree with it we have already seen that in a couple of the encounters about the sabbath and other things and fasting but they accuse him with a very very absurd conspiracy here first of all they make two ac accusations the first one is jesus is possessed by satan himself that's kind of bold so that's the first accusation and they use the term beelzebul now that's a that's an Old Testament term that the Jews, that actually meant, it was talking about the, the false god Baal. And I won't get into all the details, but eventually Beelzebul became Beelzebub, and it was a, it was a mocking name for the Baal, the, god, the false god Baal. Eventually it became a mocking name for Satan. So when they use it here, they're talking about Satan. This is this, their, their moniker, their name for Satan is Beelzebul. And, or Beelzebub, you may see that in some translations. So they're accusing him, Jesus, of being possessed by Satan, the Satan, the devil. 
And the second accusation is that Jesus is casting out these demons just to look good. That he's really in collusion with Satan to, to confuse and mislead the crowds. That's crazy. That's just crazy talk. He is not doing this, but they have come up with this weird conspiracy after these horrible blasphemies that uh, they, they mention about Jesus, Jesus corrects them. And he corrects them with kingdom language. You know, he could have probably just pronounced condemnation on them right there, but he goes through some lessons. Why? Because there's a crowd listening. There's a crowd around him. He's teaching. He's teaching at the same time. He's, he's uh, rebuking. He teaches the, crowds, the crowd and the scribes with parables. Now, we know that, what that word means, but I'm going to give you another definition just to remind you. Parables are extended analogies used to make a specific spiritual point. They can be vi very vivid, proverbial sayings. They can be brief similes. They can be, be metaphoric phrases. I know you don't want to know all this. Or they can be short stories drawn from everyday life to communicate important truths. And that's what primarily Jesus falls into. And they can be neutral or they can be controversial. And most of the time in Mark, when he starts talking in parables, he's in a controversy with somebody. Jesus is. But Jesus uses them right here, and everywhere he uses them, usually he uses them to conceal and reveal truth about the kingdom of God. He's using them both, on both sides. And we go, how does he do that? Well, because of the Holy Spirit primarily, and that's another sermon all in itself. So Jesus wants them to see their lack of understanding and he's talking about the scribes and the crowd. He wants them to understand, you do not understand what I'm doing. Because if you are accusing me of being possessed by Satan and that I'm in collusion with Satan, you do not understand. And they'll know that when they can't decipher his parables. Now the difference between the scribes and others that don't get the meaning of the parable is they never ask for the meaning of the parable. You'll find, we're going to find many times over his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, I just didn't get that. What, what are you talking about? And sometimes he goes, you guys are still so thick, you don't understand this? He's not impatient with them, but he's wanting them to understand because these parables are meant to reveal truth as well as conceal it. The hardness of these scribes' hearts toward God prevents them from receiving the teachings of God. And see, by using parables, Jesus is fulfilling prophecies about Jesus. Isaiah 6.9, Isaiah 43.8, Jeremiah 5.21, Ezekiel 12, 2. These are all God's judgments on the people of Israel because they were rejecting God. They were not obeying him. They were not following him. And so parables are used because they're just not going to listen. Now the first parable here, we see it as pretty much a common strategic fact. Kingdoms and families and armies, etc., if they divide... They cannot conquer anything. And, you know, that's one of the biggest things in, in warfare is do not divide your forces. Napoleon did that and lost. Not Napoleon. Uh, the guy down in, in, in uh, Santa Ana did that. So don't divide. Don't divide. And even in Matthew and Luke's account of this encounter, Jesus kind of dissects their accusations a little better. He, says, he, says, he, he sees and shows that they are refusing to see God's work right in their faces. Listen to what Luke writes. Jesus is speaking. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They're missing the whole thing. Jesus is, that's why Jesus asked these, these very pointed questions. Satan's impact in this world would be neutered and done if he divided his forces and cast himself out of other people. So Jesus isn't working for Satan, which we knew that. Y'all aren't. Y'all are smart enough. The second parable here is about Jesus explaining why he's doing all these exorcisms, why he is casting out demons. Jesus is attacking Satan's kingdom on earth directly. And see, if Satan's kingdom is under attack, he's, the last thing he's going to do is divide his forces and have each other cast each other out. He knows he's under attack. And the strong man parable, Jesus is explaining that he is attacking Satan's kingdom. Because Satan is the strong man in the parable. You can't plunder someone's house, the strong man's house, unless you tie him up. So Satan is the strong man, and there's only one way to bind a strong man, and that is to be stronger. You can't bind a strong man unless you're stronger. And guess what? Jesus is stronger. Say it with me. Jesus is stronger. We need to leave here today convinced of that very fact. Jesus is stronger. Now Jesus plunders Satan's spoils. And what are Satan's spoils? Human souls, human bodies that he has racked with illness and disease, that he has plagued with the, the curse of death, that he has possessed and, and had them do insane things. Jesus is plundering the, all of that. You know, and Jesus, John the baptizer actually predicted this. And back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, he said, there's a stronger one coming. The one who comes in power with the Holy Spirit will be stronger. Jesus is stronger. And Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty two, 22, he says, he divides the spoils of the strong man. Jesus is limiting Satan's impact. Because Jesus is stronger. And a time will come. Right now, Satan is limited by Jesus. Believe it or not. I know. You read the headlines, you're going, I can't believe that. But a time will come when Satan will not be so limited. That he'll be turned loose. And then after that, Jesus comes. Praise God. Because Jesus is stronger. And I want you to see right here in the, in the midst of this this crazy accusation and, and, and crazy blasphemy they commit, that, that it's a level of blasphemy that you probably never have seen before unless you've read this. They have rejected the kingdom of God that is right in their face. And they have accused Jesus of having a conspiracy with Satan. Their blasphemy is in itself demonic. They have impenitent souls. They just don't want to repent, even though they know that only God can cast out demons. They refuse to hear the voice of God in Jesus Christ, and it seals their fate. We're going to find that out in a minute. In Proverbs, it says, wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand against jealousy? You know what? Our God is a jealous God. Who can stand before his jealousy? Nobody. So we've got to watch what we do. Now, applying this particular passage to our lives, as believers in Christ, we don't have that 
this to worry about necessarily. But, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, the over, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. <laughs> so we, we need to be careful with what we say. And we need to be careful with what's in our heart. So first of all, don't be careless with your words. Don't be careless with your accusations. Because in Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says those things will be judged. Every careless word you speak will be judged. We must be careful how we speak about Jesus and the truth. Sometimes we say things just to win the argument. I mean, because we're Americans, we're all about winning, right? We say things just to win the argument when it would be better just to shut up. It'd be better, like James says, the tongue is a fire. It'd be better to keep our mouth shut and, and, and work a different route than trying just to win an argument. We don't need to burn down the house just to clean it. The second thing we can probably take away from this is don't test God. Don't test God with your refusal to repent. In Deuteronomy 6.16, they were asked, the children of Israel asked that, are you going to test God by not being repentant? When God calls us to repent, he's being kind. He's not being domineering. He's not being an ogre. He's not being a tyrant. He is being kind. And Paul says in Romans 2, 4, in kindness, we find repentance. By God's kindness, it can lead us to repentance if we realize that. Don't test God with your refusal to repent. repent. And the third thing is that God's love is everlasting. God's love is everlasting, but his patience is not. His patience has a limit. It has an end. It's, it's way past hours, so don't worry. But his patience has an end. And he says that in Isaiah 7, 13. And when we continually refuse to obey, and we may find ourselves punished, not condemned to hell, but punished. So don't try Jesus' patience. Don't try God's patience. See, blasphemy from the heart will condemn us. And it will condemn a soul to hell, and we're going to look at that in a minute. So we need to be careful what our heart speaks. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Be careful what's in our heart. Refine it. Make your heart better with prayer, God's word, worship. That's what we should probably take away from that particular passage. Now, now Jesus tells them the cost of their blasphemy. And their cost was forgiveness. Point number three, Jesus condemns blasphemy of the heart. Let me read verses 28 through 30 again. Truly I tell you, this is the first time Jesus has said this in the book of Mark. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So this is scene number three. And Jesus is, puts this intentional break here. Truly, I tell you. Amen, lego, hymen, which is the Greek. When he says that, you need to pay attention. Because Jesus is about to give you a new revelation. And hopefully you can see from the previous point that the despicable blasphemy that these scribes had committed they committed against the Holy Spirit of God. And the, and the reason we need to understand this is everything Jesus did, his miracles, his signs, everything was as a result of the Holy Spirit working through him. 
Now, we may find that an unusual thing, but, but it is by the power of the Spirit. That's what John's talking about when he says, there will be one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, and that's part of the baptizing. His miracles are a sign by the Spirit that Jesus is God. They work together. And that's a whole other sermon on the Trinity. But John the baptizer said that he will baptize with the Spirit, and that's part of it. With all these things, these signs of his deity, the Holy Spirit is revealing who Jesus is. And the revelation is this, that forgiveness is available for all forms of sin, for all forms of blasphemy. Even if you blaspheme the Son of God, you'll be forgiven. That's in another account of this. With repentance and faith, God will forgive you for that. It's unconditional forgiveness. And this is new to these people, okay? Their forgiveness had always been conditional. Their forgiveness had always required a sacrifice, an offering of some sort. Other religions of the time required you to do something to make yourself right with your deity, but there was nothing guaranteeing that either. I mean, the Jews had a guarantee that they would be forgiven of their past sins that they offered sacrifices. But this was new to them. Unconditional forgiveness. And then the second part, though, the second part of this revelation starts with a big word, but, but, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is unpardonable. And you've heard the phrase, the unpardonable sin. This is it. Okay, and I'm going to try to explain it and, and dissect it for you to help you understand it a little better. The reason it's unpardonable is because forgiveness is never wanted by the person who commits this sin. They never want to be forgiven. They're unpardonable. What are these guys unpardonable for? What are they unforgivable for? The scribes, the scribes here gave credit for Jesus casting out demons and healing people to, the, the, to, the, to Satan. To Satan. To the devil. They gave credit and glory to Satan for what the Holy Spirit was doing through Christ. Let that sink in. What they were doing was they were just basically saying, I see the kingdom of God and I reject it. In, full light of, in the full light of Christ Jesus, when the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit had shown right in front of them, they chose darkness, they chose evil, and they accused Jesus of in, being in collusion with Satan. And they concluded that the Messiah, who we know Jesus as the Messiah, they concluded that Jesus, the Messiah, was a demon-possessed counterfeit. I don't know where you come from. I call that bad. Okay? That's really bad. They didn't accept him as the Savior. And why? Why are they unforgivable? Well, it's really not just an isolated act. I mean, we need to understand that this is not just a one-time event. This is a heart condition. Okay? This is a, a settled hardening of the heart forever against God's grace. Their souls were settled as to never believe in Jesus or his salvation. And that was what makes it an eternal sin. And it refers to their future judgment. Now here's some more about the theology behind that unforgivable sin. In the context of our kingdom of God, the sin of blaspheming the Son of God, or Jesus, it's really just rejection of the truth of the gospel. 
But with repentance and forgiveness from a regenerated heart, you can be forgiven. But the blasphemy of the Spirit is rejection of that same gospel when it's been vividly and fully portrayed right in front of you. It's like you see the truth and you completely reject it. And they fully know what they're doing. These Pharisees knew they were rejecting the Messiah. At least someone who had the evidence of the Messiah in, pres in their presence. They are thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the unpardonable sin. Even, even though there's no other explanation for why Jesus could do what he could do. I mean, that's one of the questions Nicodemus eventually asked the council. Hey, how does he do this if he's not from God? And then Mark finishes up there in verse 30 with a commentary. And he says, they said Jesus was possessed by Satan to cast out demons. That's why they were not forgivable. Unpardonable sin comes from a heart that will never desire God's forgiveness, no matter what. And I'm telling you, there's been a lot of misunderstandings over the years in, in all kinds of denominational life about what this sin is. I know a story of a man who cursed God one time, made a, made a curse, cursing God, saying, I don't want anything to ever do with God. And some Christian told him, You'll, you committed the unpardonable sin, you can never be forgiven. A few years later, he was convicted of his sins, and he realized he needed a Savior. But he thought he committed the unpardonable sin until a pastor came along and said, no, if you want forgiveness, it's available. The person who commits the unpardonable sin never, ever will want the forgiveness of God. They may act like they want it. They may talk about it. Esau's a great example. He was acting repentant. He cried, and he didn't get saved. Judas is another example. He wept. He was sorrowful. He threw the money back in the temple that he betrayed Jesus with. And he's in hell because he had committed the unpardonable sin. He never wanted God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But a person that's guilty of this sin will never ask for forgiveness. John tries to explain it in his letter in 1 John 516 he actually doesn't explain it but he more like encourages us if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death there is sin that leads to death and I do not say that one should pray for that so John's encouraging us to help one another overcome this fear that we're unforgivable because there's a lot of that out there I've, I've done such bad things, Pastor, I can never be forgiven. Not true. Not true. Because God's grace is sufficient for any sin. And if you've committed this sin, you wouldn't even be in this room right now. You never want forgiveness if you've committed this sin. See, the blasphemy of the heart in these scribes, it, it's seen in other places, like I said, Judas, Saul, Balaam. Balaam preached some really good sermons in the Old Testament. I mean, they were really good. But he's lost as a goose. He's in hell. The unpardonable sin in, in its finality is a declaration that one is against God Almighty. So how do we apply this to us? Well, all who die without Christ, they're committing the unpardonable sin. Once, you, once you've passed from this life, you can't 
ask for forgiveness. So when you pass, you're essentially committing the unpardonable sin at that point. They've rejected the grace of God that he freely offers to us through Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. But sometimes we are asking for signs and proof that God is who he says he is and that Jesus is who he says he is. And sometimes that can lead us to this very type of blasphemy even. But if you're a true believer, you don't need any more signs. You don't need any more proof. You know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, takes away the sins of the world, and he can make you clean before God. So stop looking for signs. Surrender to Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. So kind of wrapping up in a summary here, Jesus' family, they, they had some blasphemous thoughts about Jesus because they didn't see him as the Savior yet. But the scribes, they committed blasphemy of the heart against the Holy Spirit. One group is forgivable. The other group is not. And in the end, only God knows who is unpardonable. So I never take for granted that I can figure that out. I never try to figure that out. But if you desire to be forgiven by God, you are forgivable. Trust Jesus today, for he is the only way you can be forgiven. You can only, the only way you can be right with God. If you're an unbeliever here today, you are unforgiven right now in God's eyes, but you can change that. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Have faith in him. And it believe, faith believes with conviction that I trust you, Jesus, your death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. You believe it without any reservation, without any doubt, real doubt, without any desperate plea for proof. You repent. You put away all those things you were trusting in. You put them behind you. You get rid of it. And you trust Jesus Christ. And believer, the, the caution for us today out of this passage is that we watch what we say and we watch what we think. Be careful that we don't blaspheme in our mind to allow ourselves to fall short of God's glory. Keep short accounts with God. Confess your sins quickly and often because they're there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for warning us and showing us that you take the work of the kingdom serious, that you sent your spirit to give us such clear instruction that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he is the Messiah, he is the Lamb of God. He was the Son that lived the perfect life, that came and lived and died to pay our sin debt, the death sentence that was on each of our heads. And by faith and repentance, we can receive eternal life and avoid eternal death. May you instruct us in that, guide us in that. Help us to be light that conveys that very fact. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let's stand and let's sing about the loving kindness that's in Jesus Christ because that's why he came. <laughs>